Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly podcast. If you're in the Orlando area, we hope you're able to join us for one of our services. Please check out faithassembly.org for more information or follow us on social media at faithORL. We hope this message will be an inspiration to help you find all that God has for your life. Enjoy the message. It is an honor for Haley, my daughter Addie, for us to be a part. My wife Haley, we're high school sweethearts celebrating, about to celebrate our 30th year of marriage. It's an honor for her to be with me. Uh, My daughter Addie is our youngest. She just left us and went to college in Lakeland and we are now empty nesters. And uh, don't say when she's around, but it's pretty incredible, (laughs) this empty nest thing, it's pretty awesome. Uh, But we're we're thrilled that uh, she drove up to be in church with us today and we get to be with her. I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 50 today. I wanna unpack a verse of scripture that is probably the most transformational verse in the Bible throughout the course of my life for me. It's been so life-defining for me that over the years, whether I'm mentoring younger leaders or teaching, preaching, it always finds its way somehow, no matter what I'm talking about, into the conversation. I guess you could probably say that Genesis 50, 20 is my life verse. So I want us to look at it today and back up one verse to verse 19 of Genesis 50. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. My title today is the Genesis 50-20 principle, but God meant it for good. And I'm just going to confess to you, this is going to get heavy real quick because you don't know me. And I want you to know a little about me so you understand why this principle, this passage, this verse matters so much to me. From my earliest memories, I remember being sexually exploited, which is a diplomatic way of saying raped, by a man that my family knew and trusted. They were not aware of his dark and shadowy and perverted side. I'll spare you the details, but from my earliest memories up until about the third grade, this man made my life hell on earth. And the only thing that saved me in the third grade is that my mom moved away, took me with her, single mom, moved away from my hometown and got me away from him. We moved back to my hometown during the summer between my sixth and seventh grade year. And on a camping trip that summer with a lot of other people, he tried to pick up where he had left off. Without me knowing it, he followed me into the state park bathroom. But this time I was big enough and bitter enough that I fought back. I punched him in the face and I shoved him up against a cinder block wall and I ran out to get back to where people were. But then came the whispered threats. He started telling me what would happen to me and what would happen to my mom if I ever said anything to anybody. So I never told. But I did try a lot of things to cope. I started drinking heavy in the seventh grade and experimenting with a whole lot of other things, all in an attempt to try to numb my pain. By my sophomore year of high school, I was a full-blown addict. And I didn't just hate the man that abused and exploited me. I hated my father because he was never around. He was regularly unfaithful to my mom and he would often leave and eventually come back and that repeated over and over, leave and come back, leave and come back till one day he just left and never came back. And I partially blamed him for what the other man did to me because he wasn't there to protect me and I wasn't wrong. 
Study after study on the impact of fatherlessness proves that abuse skyrockets in fatherless homes. A recent study from 2018 reveals that fatherless children are at a greater risk of suffering physical, emotional, and sexual abuse with a 100 times greater risk of fatal abuse. The same study reported that preschoolers living in fatherless homes were 40 times more likely to be sexually abused. In my young mind, if my dad had been home, my life would have been drastically different, but he had different priorities and I wasn't one of them. If you know anything at all about Joseph, you can understand why I would relate to his story. Genesis chapter 50 is the culmination of the storyline of Joseph's life. And those of us that grew up in church and paid any attention at all, we have a fairly decent timeline of Joseph's life. But in order for you to grasp the power that is available in the Genesis 50-20 principle, you have to know the details that led up to it today. So I want to recap a story you're probably familiar with, but I want to point out some details we might have missed. I'm going to do that by going back to the 37th chapter of Genesis. Verse 2 says this, when Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up and your bundles all gathered round and bowed low before mine. Now, this is not the sermon today for all of you dreamers out there, but you can't trust your dream just to everybody, all right? There's a different sermon there. But you can see why Joseph's brothers, there wasn't a lot of love loss. He was a tattletale, and then he was a little arrogant with what God was doing in his life. There was some emotional immaturity here. Verse 8, his brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Joseph was born into a dysfunctional family. And a major reason for that dysfunction was Jacob's dad's partiality to Joseph. It produced a selfishness and immaturity in Joseph that fostered a bad family dynamic and caused Joseph's brothers to reject him, resent him. Driven by their hate for him, his brothers plot to kill him. But later, they decide to sell him to some Ishmaelites that were passing through. At least that way, they could get something for him. So for 20 pieces of silver, they sell Joseph to a caravan of slave traders, and he's on his way to Egypt to be abandoned to a foreign land. So just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute. You're 17 years old. You're betrayed by your brothers, and your own brothers sell you into human trafficking. You're now a victim of human trafficking, forced onto a caravan of people who speak a different language, being taken to a world with all these different gods, onto an auction block to be sold to the highest bidder. He doesn't know the culture. He doesn't know the language. And overnight, he goes from being Mr. Privileged and Favorite Son to now he's a slave 
In Egypt, he is sold into the home of a man named Potiphar, who Potiphar is basically the head of the secret service for the king of Egypt. And Potiphar learned to trust Joseph because Joseph had incredible integrity. And Joseph was a man of extreme administrative gifts. Joseph could come up with a strategic plan. He could implement strategy and planning. I mean, he was an incredible strategic thinker. And Potiphar watched this. Now, we all know it was because the hand of God was on Joseph's life. But Potiphar just noticed that everything Joseph touched flourished. It succeeded. And Potiphar was a smart guy. So he eventually turns everything in his estate over to Joseph. He gives Joseph full reign. The scripture says with Joseph in charge, Potiphar didn't have to worry about anything. The problem was with Joseph's talent, his charisma, his looks, his humble heart and attitude, it, it started to attract other attention and it was Miss Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, and she tried to seduce Joseph. But Joseph said to her, I will not betray your husband who has been good to me, and I would never do this against my God. So even in the face of betrayal and injustice that Joseph is living, he held on to his convictions. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph, starts a lie about him. He's unjustly thrown into prison. But while in prison, another one of Joseph's gifts comes to the surface. I mean, it becomes the birthing place of another gift in Joseph's heart. He has this supernatural ability to interpret dreams. And that interpretation of dreams surfaces. He interprets the dreams of two of his prison mates. One of those men was a man who would go on to become the cupbearer to the king. And that man promised Joseph, when I get out of prison, I'm going to remember you because you interpreted my dream. But when the cupbearer gets out of prison, he forgets all about Joseph and leaves him sitting unjustly in prison for years. I think a lot of us can relate to Joseph because we come from dysfunctional families. We understand rejection. We've been abandoned, betrayed, rejected, falsely accused, forgotten by our friends. And in these moments, many of us let the negative events define our lives in a negative way. We let anger, resentment, blame, and bitterness not just be emotions we feel, but we let them linger so long that they become a defining part of our identity. Joseph was rejected, abandoned, falsely accused, enslaved, imprisoned, and forgotten. But here's the thing. He never let it break him. Instead, he channeled all of those emotions and let it become the fuel that made him. Instead of it stopping his dream, those bad things are actually what allowed his dream to come to fruition. So instead of destroying him, it propelled him toward his destiny. If you remember the story... You know that the cupbearer's amnesia was suddenly removed when the Pharaoh kept having this reoccurring dream that none of his wise men could interpret. And he says to the king, I remember there's a man in prison named Joseph who has this supernatural gift of interpreting dreams. So Joseph is brought from the prison to the palace. When the Pharaoh asked Joseph if he could help, I want you to listen to how Joseph responds. He's a changed man. Listen to how he responds. Genesis 41, 16, it is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. Joseph tells the king, I can't, but God can. After years of affliction and heartbreak, Joseph has become an entirely different man. This isn't the arrogant, spoiled, 17-year-old little brother embittering those around him. Affliction has matured him. It has changed him. 
It has bettered him. It has humbled him. The Pharaoh now puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt, making Joseph one of the most powerful men in the known world. And Joseph implements a plan that God gives him that saves this world. The, 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 the world at that, the known world at that time is saved from starvation because of a global famine that raged during Joseph's lifetime. In a unique turn of events, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt begging for food. They end up bowing before Joseph, just like the dream said. Joseph now has the power in his hands to exact revenge. But instead, he now has a totally different perspective on life, on all that unfolded to bring him to this moment. And he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. For the remainder of our time today, I want to look at some of the key phrases in this verse. Just take it apart a little bit. Joseph said, number one, he, God, brought me to this position. In this phrase, you clearly see Joseph's perspective on life. You see the way he views his past, his backstory, all the pain and injustice that has led up to this moment. You get a glimpse from that statement into Joseph's theology, his worldview, the way he sees God actively at work in his story, even in the bad events of his story. When Joseph said, God brought me to this position, he's acknowledging the sovereign control of God over all things. Joseph was quick to admit that God had not caused the evil in his life, but he recognized that God in his sovereign power had taken what was meant for evil and used it to advance Joseph's destiny, and he used it to advance the agenda of God in the world which was to save the lives of a lot of people. Joseph said, God has used what's happened in my life to bring me into my purpose and destiny. God brought me to this position. And next, at the very, very first phrase of that verse, you have to see, Joseph said, you intended to harm me. You need to get this in your heart. I'm coming back to this in a minute because I have a very personal word for some people listening to me right now. And, and I, you need to get this in your heart. Joseph knew the source of evil was not the hand of God. The source of evil was from the hands and hearts of people. For those of you that have a past like mine, or like Joseph's, or maybe your present is full of heartache and pain, this is the only perspective that will keep you from going insane. To know that no matter what has happened or is happening in your life, that God has promised to turn all the evil you experience into something good, that he has promised to orchestrate people and events to bring purpose out of your pain. Knowing that and resting in that is how Joseph navigated years in a prison cell that he did not deserve to be in. Joseph knew God the same way I do. That he's Jehovah frugal because he will not waste our pain. Preachers, we like to give God a lot of names we get out of the Bible. He's Jehovah Rapha, our healer, and Jehovah Shalom, our peace, and Jehovah Nisi, our banner, and Jehovah Jireh, our provider. All of those are names in the Bible. And they are all born, they were used to describe God when people experienced him and encountered him. Isaac looked up at Abraham and said, Dad, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham said, the Lord will provide. 
In the Hebrew, that is Jehovah Jireh. It is the first time God had ever been called that. And those names are born out of experience. I know God as Jehirah and Rapha and Nisi and Shalom. I know him by all those names. But the one that is dearest to my heart is in the Bible. But his way I have encountered him. I have met him as Jehovah Frugal because he has not wasted my pain. And he will not waste yours. Joseph's brothers meant evil. They intended to harm him. But the very next phrase in the verse are these two words, but God. Joseph's brothers meant anything but good. They meant to cause him harm. They meant to ruin his life. They meant to dethrone him from the position of importance that he somehow believed he would one day hold. They meant bad. They desired evil for Joseph. But the very next words are, but God. I need everybody just to get that in your spirit. So I want you to say that with me today. Everybody say those words with me. But God. Those are two of the most powerful words you'll ever read, say, or hear. When you come across but God in Scripture, pay attention because those words reveal a divine interruption. A life-altering, in-breaking of God that is about to rewrite the entire storyline of your life. The psalmist said, my health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. Paul, when preaching in Antioch, said they took Jesus down from the cross and placed him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. But God, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. And don't forget the verse that has our attention today. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. When you read those two words, but God, it is a divine interruption that changes everything. And listen to me, Faith, I believe with all of my heart, whether you're watching on a screen or you're in this building today, I believe with all of my heart that this day, October the 9th at Faith Assembly in Orlando, Florida, is a but God moment for somebody's life. Notice what happens after the but God. But God intended it all for good. You have to notice this. The intentions of men is where the evil came from. The intentions of God were always good. So good that he was going to untangle. He committed to untangle the evil of men and actually use their ill will and evil intent to promote Joseph and propel Joseph into his destiny. God promised to make something just out of the injustice that had been aimed at Joseph's life. If you want to stay sane in your heartbreak, you're going to have to adopt Joseph's perspective through years of suffering and affliction, Joseph never let it jade him toward God. He always held on to the truth that God had good intentions toward him. That God in his sovereign grace would use the pain he was experiencing for his greater purposes. 
You see a pattern in Genesis 50, 20, the verses of Joseph's life. You see that pattern all throughout Scripture. And if you watch, you'll see this pattern in your life. The pattern goes just like this. Evil, God, good. That's the pattern. Evil, God, good. Evil unleashes its fury, whether it's the evil of other people, the attack of the spiritual enemy, or the negative consequences of living in a fallen world. Evil will aim itself at you, but God breaks in. There's a but God moment of the evil in your life. Evil, God, good. It's the pattern. It's the pattern in Joseph's life. It's been the pattern in my life, and God wants to interrupt the evil in your life today. But God meant it all for good. Now let me point you to the last phrase of Genesis 50, 20. He brought me to this position. Here's why. So I could save the lives of many people. There was purpose in Joseph's pain. There was purpose in God redeeming the evil in Joseph's life. And that purpose was for the saving of other people's lives. I need you to lean in and listen. When you're going through all the affliction in your life, God isn't just preparing you for your destiny. Simultaneously, he's also preparing the people you're supposed to impact when when you get there. Your destiny isn't just about you. He's redeeming the evil that's been aimed at you so you can save the lives of many people. There is purpose in your pain. And that purpose is connected to your ministry to other broken people. Your ability to impact others is born out of the pain that you are experiencing. And I often say this, your pain will become the passport that gives you access into the lives of other brokenhearted people. And if we can see the world, if we can see pain and injustice, if we can see God the way Joseph did, we can learn that God takes seed from every sorrow and he plants it in somebody else's tomorrow. He's going to extract seed out of today's pain in your life and he's seeding it into your future and he's seeding it into somebody else's pain where redemption is going to happen. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. When I encountered Jesus, I had no idea what he wanted to do in my life. I just knew I'd found a love I'd never known. I knew I had finally found a father that wouldn't leave. He started unraveling the barbs of addiction from my life and slowly began healing my closed off and wounded heart. Haley and I got married young, started traveling the country as youth evangelists, and I would do youth camps all summer and conventions and retreats, and there'd be times I'd be in arenas and auditoriums and see 10, 15,000 people or camps with 2,000 teenagers. And as I got healed up on the inside, I started telling my story and I would watch kids by the thousands throughout the year respond because they finally found somebody that had a commonality and there was comfort to them in our shared experience. And if there was hope in the healing that had happened in my heart, maybe they could find that same healing and hope in their life. As I watched kids by the thousands through the years pray at these altars knowing that that night was over and I went on to the next city, it broke me. I gotta have more time with these kids. I can't knock the scab off the wounds that are toxic in their heart. And, and I know I'm entrusting them with God. I know I'm entrusting them to other people, but I gotta do more. 
And it was in those moments 30 years ago, 28 years ago, that God started birthing in mine and Haley's heart to launch a camp just for kids that had been sexually exploited, neglected, or abused in some way. About 12 years ago, we ran our first camp for 36 kids. Over the years, it's grown. In 2015, we founded a nonprofit that bought a ranch outside of Dallas so we could have equine therapy and counseling and we could train for foster and adopt and work with local churches to take in some of the worst abuse cases in the nation. I, I, can't, I, don't, I can't even tell you the, the case files. I mean, you, you couldn't stand to listen to them. But let me just tone them down a little bit and tell you, a seven-year-old girl shows up at Lonesome Dove Ranch because she was left on the floor of a hotel room, a victim of human trafficking. And when she had been used up, they threw her on the floor like the laundry from last night, and the housekeeping staff found her. They'd been found in dog kennels in a barn in Denton, Texas. They were treated like animals. They were mobily and mentally impaired because they had been treated like dogs, very, rarely defecating on themselves, rarely let in and out of a cage. They'd been boiled alive in hot water. They've been put in dryers and turned on and left for dead, and neighbors found them. And they wind up in the foster system, too traumatized for normal care, and they wind up in our care. And we have to have specialized families training them. They go through our camping process and therapy processes in the hopes of getting them connected to a Christian forever family. And I can tell you this, one of the greatest joys in my life as a pastor now is watching the people from my church serve at our nonprofit, say, Pastor, we can't leave you. We got to do something about this. We can train you for foster and adopt. And then we get them trained for foster and adopt. And now when I walk off of the ranch where I live into the lobby of my church on Sunday morning and I see a kid that used to have a caseworker and now she's got a family and I see the stories and the case files, now there are smiles. It is the gospel, the gospel of grace and redemption coming full circle. And when the enemy attacks me, because you think you get over it. You don't always fully get over it. There's something that happens that'll knock the scab off. And when the bitterness and the unforgiveness and the hurt comes back because of my past or what I didn't have with my dad, I walk out on that ranch when there's a kid's activity or I go back to that kid's wing at church and I see these kids that came through the ranch that are now adopted into my church and I will declare out loud, devil, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of people's lives. Before we finish, let me point this out. As Joseph settled into his leadership in Egypt, he married and he had a family. I want you to pay close attention to the names he gave his sons. In Genesis 41:51, Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles. And Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief or affliction. The name Manasseh in Hebrew literally means to forget. In other words, the memories don't haunt me anymore. They don't control me anymore. I have a different perspective now. And then when he said Ephraim, his other son's name, it means God has called me to be fruitful. He's caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph named his children prophetic names so that every time he saw Manasseh and called his name and every time he saw Ephraim and called his name, he was declaring the goodness of God over his life. Now, I don't expect you to start naming your kids like Joseph, but my prayer for you today is that God will help you forget and move past the pain and that you will become fruitful in spite of your heartache, that you will see the goodness of God in the land of your affliction, that this would be a Manasseh moment for you. 
an Ephraim moment for you. Friend, if you have bitter things in your life, things that look like they have diverted you and put you on a detour from the destiny you had in mind, they do not have the final say in your life. They are not the defining factors in who you are. The devastation and detours will be redeemed by God and he will get you exactly where he wants you to be. Trust him. He knows the way to your destiny and he knows what he's doing along the way. The team is going to come today and prepare our hearts in worship. But let me just say this. I want you to know this Joseph story, my story, is not a one-off event. All right? I want you to know that. I mean, it's all through the Bible. It's a pattern in Scripture. I mean, look at Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite girl, minding her own business. She's a pagan. I mean, the arch enemy of the people of God in that era were Moabites. Naomi and her husband Elimelech had to flee Bethlehem because of a famine. They wind up in Moab. One of Naomi's sons marries Ruth, a Moabite girl. The famine is so severe that eventually Elimelech dies and so do both of his sons. Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, Moabite girl, said, I'm going back to my people. Ruth said to Naomi, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to lay my head where you lay your head. Your God is going to be my God. So these two widows return from Moab, an older Hebrew woman and a Moabite widow. They get back to, to Bethlehem, and the only social safety net for women of that era was a kinsman redeemer, some relative, to step up, marry one of them, take them in to provide for them. The kinsman redeemer did not enact on his responsibility, and it left these women vulnerable. Ruth didn't even know what to do except just get up in the morning and try to pick leftover grain out of the field that fell out of the bags of the reaper. So in order to be faithful to her mother-in-law, she goes into the fields and she's picking up leftover grain. She didn't know whose field she was walking into. She's just trying to be faithful. And the Bible says in the King James, she happened upon a place. <laughs> she stumbled by God's sovereignty into Boaz's field. Boaz was struck by her beauty. And he said, when that girl gets behind you, gentlemen, pour some out of your bag. Some handfuls that have left on purpose for her. They end up getting married. They have a son. His name is Obed. I know that doesn't do much for you. But Obed has a son and his name is Jesse. That ought to start clicking some stuff for you. And then Jesse has a son and his name is David. And yeah, it's that David. And then generations later, the son of David with healing in his wings is born. Jesus. Do you realize the death, the misfortune, the famine, all of that was orchestrated. It's, it's, we live in a sinful world, but God redeemed it. And he took a Moabite girl, put her in the lineage of the king, one of the greatest kings of Israel. Put her in the lineage of Jesus because he redeems our pain. He will propel you into your purpose. He's going to take what was meant for evil. And he's going to use it for good. Listen to me. I have a very specific word. I've shared out of Genesis 50, 20 in my life. I have never said this ever in the last 30 years, ever. Yesterday in a hotel room, God spoke to my heart about some, I'm talking to somebody in this room today. You don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you've never had a relationship with God or you are away from God at this moment, very distant because you blame him. Things that have gone on in your life, things that are going on in your life right now, you know that they were at the hands of people. You know we live in a fallen world, but you blame God. 
If God was really good, if he cared about you, then this wouldn't have happened. And underneath all of that, you blame him. And because you're bitter and you blame him, you can't be intimate with what you're bitter toward. You can't have a relationship with what you're blaming. And there's distance and there's coldness between you and God because you have him on the hook. You're holding him accountable for all the hurt in your life. And you know what that is. That's a trick of the enemy. Because the enemy knows intimacy with God is the only way you're going to find healing for what ails your soul. So he's tried to drive a wedge between you and God, making you blame God, hold God accountable for your pain. And by doing so, living that lie has separated you from the only place you can find real healing. But in my heart today, somebody's going to say, God, I, I realize you have good intentions towards me. All this time, I've, I'm, I've quietly held you responsible. That's why you seem so far away. That's why you seem so distant. And today, forgive me and come close. I need your embrace. Heal me. I'm going to ask you to do this, right? We're going to go into a broader altar response in a minute, but I just need to know that I'm not missing this today. Would you bow your heads? And campus pastors at your locations, would you help me across this room? Would you bow your heads? And if you say, pastor, that's me. That's me. I held God responsible and there's distance in my relationship with him because I'm angry, but I want to lay down my anger and I want to run to him and find healing in his embrace today. If that's you, would you slip your hand high enough to let me see it? I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Hands are going up all over this place today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm going to ask this whole church family, all of you, would you stand to your feet today, please? All of you. I'm going to ask the prayer team, as everybody stands, I'm going to ask the prayer team if they would to come and make themselves available at the front of this building today to serve you. Here's here's what I would like, okay? If time wasn't an essence and I I wasn't limited to my, this is what I want to do today. I want every brokenhearted person in this room, I want to be able to, I want Haley and I to be able to hold you, cry with you, weep with you in this moment, because this is what's about to happen, okay? This is what I said, God, what are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do tomorrow? And he took me to Isaiah 61. This is what's going to happen. The oil of joy and gladness is about to be poured on somebody's head. Ashes of despair are going to be traded in. And he's going to place a crown of beauty on you. A garment of praise is going to replace your spirit of heaviness. You're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Cast down, but not destroyed. Weeping, the psalmist said, endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And it's about to be sunrise in somebody's life today. Some of you raised your hand a moment ago because that word was for you. But there's a broader room full of people whose hearts are broken today. Broken because of divorce, because of death, because of abuse, because of all kinds of injustice, racism, I don't, all kinds of junk that has been aimed at you. And there's healing coming to our hearts today. I know I take a big risk, you don't know me. Standing in front of a room full of people today and I'm about to give an altar call for the things people always hide. And I'm asking you to let your soul be made bare today so God can heal your broken heart. These people with my hands extended today, they're God's hands extended today. There's a Joseph in the room today. There's a Ruth in the room today. But there's a Jesus in the room today. And there is healing in this house. If, there is, if this moment is for you, if 
God is talking to you, would you step out from where you are? Come on. Get to this altar, Joseph. Get to this altar, Ruth. You have a broken heart. There is healing for your marriage. There is healing for your heart today. Come on. The, the, the waters are troubled. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The waters are troubled. There is healing in this house. Jesus said in Luke 4, 18, that he had come to heal the brokenhearted. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. He's going to do that in this house today. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Faith Assembly podcast. Thank you for joining us in pursuit of growing closer to Christ. Stay tuned for more messages released every week. God bless.